0: Good morning, please uh, find in your Bibles, uh, First Thessalonians chapter one. As has already been said several times this morning, we need few reminders of how uncertain and fragile life is. Uh, Just looking at current events uh, the invasion in Ukraine with the many lives lost there, the hundreds of thousands of people who have found their way uh, into different places who have lost Everything, only their lives and maybe just a few possessions. Think of just the last couple of years with COVID, how that has disrupted and changed virtually everything in life, right? Or even think last year of, of the ship, the Ever Given, that was trapped in the Suez Canal for just six days. But in those six days, uh, supply lines were disrupted, trade was halted, it cost and just in terms of the cost of trade, it would cost $10 billion every day. Uh, and it was just a boat stuck in the mud, <laughs> and yet it, it had an impact around the world. But of course, often it's, it's more personal, right? It's, it's the diagnosis, it's the... the the broken relationship or the threat of it. It's the lost job or the rumor of it. It's the, um, just the daily trials of life that, that we all face. It's the car accident that changes your whole life in just a split second. We're familiar with those things, right? And you add to that the prospect of persecution, which is a lot of what we see the Thessalonians were dealing with. It's happening more widely now in some places uh, than in others. Some of you are from places where there is terrible persecution against Christians, terrible conflict anyway, but in particular, terrible persecution against, against Christians. So how do we endure day by day? We've, it's already been said several times uh, by, by, Her- by by Phil, by others. Um, how do we endure? Where is God? How do we relate to God? How do we trust God in these times? Well, I think uh, we find a bit of an answer in First Thessalonians 1. We saw uh, last week that to thrive in hard times, the church and those in the church, we as people, need to understand that we are in Christ, and that, that changes everything. That's a relationship that, that cannot be broken. We've been brought from death to life, brought in Christ. And today, what we'll see is that like a, like a tree whose root systems grow deep and grow wide, uh, each of us. And we as a church, as ICP, need to be rooted in the sovereign work of a good God on our behalf. So let's read in First Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll pick up at verse 2, which we read last week, but we'll read to the end of the chapter. We won't look at all of that today, but we'll, we'll look through it. So we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from God to idol, turned. sorry, Turned, can't miss that one. Turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So Paul's gratitude drives everything he says in chapter one. He says, I thank God. I thank God whenever I mention you in my prayers, I thank God whenever I remember how your faith, love, and hope are on display in the difference that Christ has made in your life. And starting in chapter 4, he is giving thanks because he knows something about them. He gives thanks knowing what God has done on their behalf for them and in them and how they responded. God did an amazing work in the Thessalonians, and he did this in such a remarkable fashion that news of it spread all over the region, not just in the city, not just in that province, but in the neighboring province, all over that region. It seemed as if it was everywhere what had happened in the Thessalonians. Uh, You have to wonder, you know, I said when we looked at Acts, it seemed like the Thessalonians were maybe not so noble as the ones in Berea. And so you think there must have been a remarkable transformation for it to be news all over. So it is truly an amazing work of God there. So he says in verse 4, and remember, he's continuing his theme of gratitude that he began in verse 2. He says in verse 4, knowing brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. Now God's choice of people is also called election. And election can be a controversial topic, but that should not cause us to avoid it because instead we need to humbly try to understand it with the help of of the Lord, His Holy Spirit. We need to try to understand this humbly and biblically because we do not have the luxury of avoiding scriptures that make us uncomfortable. So in the end, we might have immediate discomfort, but ultimately all scripture is given for it is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And that includes scriptures that make us uncomfortable. So let's look at some of those. (laughs) So get ready to be uncomfortable. I've been there, right? Summer of 1982, think back that far. I was a new believer in a Bible study with other university students. One week, the leader invited this old evangelist. I say he was old. He was probably 50, which sounds incredibly young to me today because now I'm past 60. So, but at the time, he seemed ancient. Um, but in the course of that Bible study, the subject of election came up, and I had never heard of it, and I was mad. I was upset, and I pushed back, and I argued what I lacked in knowledge I made up for in intensity. And I went home that night mad, got up the next morning and said, I am going to prove. I remember having this thought, I am going to prove this old bird wrong. (laughs) And I got in my Bible and began studying this subject. And it took me about 10 minutes to realize I could not have been more wrong. Not only is it in the Bible, it's actually a major theme. And I couldn't just ignore it. I had to learn what it means. And I had to take the witness of Scripture for itself to understand what election means. And, of course, that started me on a long journey, not one that ended that day or that week, that year or that decade, that century, even that millennium, right? (laughs) So um, I'm still learning. I understand a little more now than I did then, but there's still mystery, of course. And, by the way, that old evangelist became a a dear friend and a mentor. He's now with the Lord, but um, I've never known Anybody who prayed like he did. I've never known anybody who delighted in the Lord like he did, who delighted in just how a day unfolded because it was a gift from his sovereign good father and how he delighted in helping people come to Christ. It was so what an amazing man. You know, uh, when Elijah was dying and Elisha asked, and he said to Elisha, make one request, and Elisha said, Lord, give me a double portion of your spirit. I think when when RF, this, this brother died, I just think, if I would just take half of your spirit, you know, if I could just have a percentage, if I could be half like you are, I'd be happy. Probably not, but it sounded cool. Um, so as we look at this subject, I hope you will see this is not a, a doctrine to avoid or, or to resent or resist or to be angry about, but it is something to rejoice in. It is given for our good and it can help sustain you through difficult times because we all face those. It it can help empower you as a bold witness for Christ that we all desire to be. So let's see what we can learn about this from 1 Thessalonians 1. Let's notice first that election is something that God does. It's not something we do. In verse four, it says, he has chosen you. I think this will become more clear as we go through this. Now, this does not mean that we do not have a choice. We do make real, willing choices that have real consequences. We make choices about daily things, and we make choices about ultimate things. It is a choice to follow Christ. We make a choice to repent, to commit our lives to Him. Um, and our, our choices all have real consequences. But this tells us that all of our choices, our willing, free choices, Regardless of their intent, always, in some way, advance the purpose of God. Okay, you are never going to thwart the purpose of God on a personal level or an ultimate cosmic level by the choices you make. And in some way, even if your intent is to oppose God, you will in somehow advance his purpose. So, if you are fighting or rebelling against God, even today, just know you Are fighting a losing battle. He is an enemy you do not want, and his record is flawless, okay? So just know, yes, we have, and we make willing choices with real consequences, but all our choices in some way, even perhaps initially it may seem to oppose or thwart, but ultimately they do not. So what does this mean for, uh, and we had, as we read this, we have to think, ask ourselves, not so much, well, what do I think about this? But let's try to put ourselves in the, the, the place of the Thessalonians, a, a suffering church whose existence was threatened on a daily basis. So for a, a suffering church, for people in hardship, your hope is nourished because you are reminded that your salvation, our salvation, is a work of God from beginning to end. It is all of God. So a second thing to notice is that God's choice of us is based on his love not on anything in us. So we see this again in verse four. We know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. So election is never presented in scripture as an abstract concept, some kind of distant clinical thing. I, I looked at some books I have at home for a definition and I... Um, I uh, You'll probably wish I didn't say this, but I started to say and decided not to and then just changed my mind. Um, well, the best thing to do is put Wayne Grudem and Christopher Wright in a blender <laughs> and, and take, basically I'm combining, there, neither of them had a perfect definition was what I'm saying. But fortunately I do, but I'm not going to share it. Um, because we just need to stick with the text. So God's choice of us is based on his love. But the reason I went down that little trail is, of course I have a lot of books in theology, it's sort of my day job. And those books present their definitions, but in in many cases they are, they're more academic and distant, They're, they're less personal because, you know, it is a book after all. So we need to understand that whenever election is presented in scripture, it is not an academic concept, it's not an abstract thing, it is presented almost always to a suffering people, that they are loved and chosen and precious to God, okay? So it's, it's never presented as just a theological concept. It is theological, but it's never presented as just that. It is deeply personal. It is revealed to us so that we will know his love is everlasting. It is everlasting without beginning, without end. It is powerful. It is more powerful than sin, more powerful than unbelief, more powerful than death itself. And it feeds our joy in times of hardship to know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So verse 4 also tells us that this election is personal, right? He says, he has chosen you. It's his people. It's us. You're chosen. It's, it's not this distant concept. It's not impersonal. It is his everlasting unfailing covenant love that is shown toward us, broken, fallen, rebellious creatures ruined by idolatry. And yet he shows us this kind of love. It's a, it's a scandal for some people, it's a scandal for God because look at who he has chosen. literally the most pathetic people in the world, right? I mean, you know, an all wise God, could you not have chosen a better people? No. This is what he did. He loves us, and the, the reason for that is found in himself and not in us. So again, for a suffering church to understand that we, each of us, and all of us collectively are loved and treasured, it is comforting, it is uplifting when it seems like everything else is lost. Then let's see that election is for salvation. Now, there's more to it, but we need to see this. We'll get to the rest in a moment. But Paul says in verse four that God chose them. And then basically the rest of chapter one unpacks how he knows that. And the heart of it is, I know that God has chosen you because of the way you responded to the gospel. That's, that's, that's the big sign, right? That's the, um, you know, if, if it was like a COVID test, that would be the double stripe. <laughs> Your response to the gospel is the positive, is the positive test. So. Um, how do you know it is in their response for the gospel so uh, for example in verse two he talks about their faith hope and love being in Christ in verse six he said you received the gospel you received our message verse 10 you turn from idols to Christ so that in 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 a nutshell is how he knew because they had responded now he didn't say it I don't think while he was there I think he talked about it, but it is something he sees looking back. And that's often the case. He sees that, that, yes, their response to the gospel has indicated there that it didn't start that his God's love for them didn't start the day they trusted Christ. It didn't start the day they were born. It didn't start the first day the Thessalonians walked into the synagogue. It began before he ever created the world. And this, We see this in um, Ephesians chapter 1. Where it's also clear that election is something that God did before he created the world. So, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. For he, that is the Father, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, who wouldn't want to be holy and blameless? So, thank God that's what he's done for us. In love, there's that word again. In love, he predestined us to or for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will he took pleasure in doing this we get upset about it because well because our life is fairly stable we think we think we're democratic and we want to vote and we come we come we encounter a sovereign god who took pleasure in loving us before he ever created us. Before there was space and time, he loved you. He determined that your sin and your failures and your shortcomings and your unbelief and your pain would not keep you from coming to Christ, would not keep you from fixing your faith, love and hope in Jesus Christ. That should be of great comfort, especially in the midst of hardship and trials because nothing You have done, nothing you will ever do will change God's love for you. It is unchanging, it is everlasting, it is without beginning, it is without end. His love endures forever, as the Psalm says. So, uh, there's something else about election that we need to see in chapter one, and really most of chapter one is about this, so we'll spend more of our time on this, because it shows us another purpose of election besides our salvation. We saw last week that the church in Christ, uh, that the the church is in Christ, and because of that, we participate in the life of God. But we also now participate in God's ongoing activity in the world, and that is an expression of God's choice of us. So... See, we need to understand that what happened at Thessalonica was not just simply, this was a great revival. This was just a lot of people making decisions and, and it was awesome and it was amazing. There was more going on here. There almost always is more going on than we see, right? But we need to understand the, the larger biblical context of what happened there. So we, by, because of election, we participate in God's ongoing activity in the world. So verses five to 10, but first, let's see it in the, in the larger context. In Genesis 12, we see that God chose Abraham and his descendants as part of his plan to, to bless all the peoples of the earth. So he chose Abraham and his descendants, but they were not an end. He had in view blessing all the families of the earth. Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. This is the Lord speaking to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Years later, in the Exodus, God delivered Abraham's descendants, his biological descendants, from slavery in Egypt, brought them into a covenant relationship with him as a nation of priests. We see this in Exodus 19, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It won't kill us to look at it again. Exodus 19, verse 3, then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. And what you are to tell the people of Israel. So, this is after the Exodus, they're, they're there at Mount Sinai, there to receive the law, to enter into this covenant relationship with God. This is like the, the minister welcoming everyone to a wedding, okay? <laughs> Here it is. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, You will be my treasured possession. And though the whole, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. And this points to their purpose as a nation of priests to represent God to the nations and the nations to God. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a nation that belongs to him. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So we see from this that Israel is a people that are, they are, Chosen, they are delivered or redeemed, and they are brought into covenant with God. And that covenant with God is for the sake of the nations. Now, let's understand this because God did not choose Israel, He did not deliver Israel just to have a people for His own. If He had wanted that, there were a lot of places He could have put them, right? I mean, Siberia, wide open. Kyrgyzstan, nobody there yet, right? North America, unsettled. And yet what he does is put them right in the middle of the nations. Now why would he do that? And he then gives them a covenant that requires them to live so radically different from the nations around them that they can't help but take notice. And the purpose of this was that the nations would see and would take notice that there is, this is a people who have a God near them like no other people does. A God who is good and wise, who gives good laws. That the purpose of this was to draw those nations to himself. Israel did a poor job. You know, that, that had results here and there, but they, as we often do, failed in their purpose. That does not change the nature of that covenant and this storyline that we see a people chosen, redeemed, brought into the covenant for, for others, okay? So when we come to the New Testament, we may be surprised to find that the same language is applied to Abraham's faith descendants, those of us who have believed in Christ and are Abraham's descendants and heirs to the promise made to him. Because remember, God promised Abraham through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. His intent was never just Abraham's biological descendants, but all of us who have received the gospel, who have trusted Christ, we are heirs to this promise. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we see this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is intentionally the same language that is used in Exodus 19. There is, there is a great continuity here. We also are Abraham's descendants. We also are chosen, redeemed, and brought into covenant. But look at this. He, he, he helps us understand in a way that's analogous to Israel being placed among the nations. You are God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So there aren't, there aren't laws so much for us to obey, right? It is a relationship. But that relationship is... Countercultural. It is different from those around us. But and we are to not be ashamed, not be embarrassed, but to boldly declare: this is who God is, this is who Christ is, this is who we are, this is his story and my story and your story. So why did God choose you? You know, you are not the end, <laughs> you are not the goal. God chooses you because He also loves your family and your colleagues and your relatives and your classmates, your flatmates, those within your reach who do not yet know him. So we need to be living each day just with the sense of expectancy and and alertness to say, God, what are you doing around me? How can I bear faithful witness of you? Perhaps use me some word today to speak to someone to help them come to faith. We've talked about this before, but you know, Proclaim Christ where we have opportunity, cross those bridges, do that. Because see, this is, what, this is what election empowers us to do. We understand it. we are a part of it. Paul was a part of it, right? Paul understood. This is what has happened in my life. And now I am part of God's ongoing activity. But we saw this in the Thessalonians as well in verses 5 to 10. They embraced the gospel. They embraced suffering. They treasured Christ. Their faith, love, and hope were focused in Christ. Their lives were changed. And this became news not just in their city but all around. And it wasn't just that the Christians in the other places understood. It was generally known. Something amazing has happened with these people. So this is what Paul describes in verses 5 to 6. So starting in verse 5, Paul recalls from his time there and from the news that Timothy brought him later, the amazing way God had worked. So he says in verse 5 that the, that the gospel came to them with power. Now this often refers to miracles. Uh, but in Acts 17, we don't see miracles we, we, it does mention persecution and suffering. So he may be referring to the, to the grace that God gave to Paul and Silas and Timothy to suffer there, to proclaim the gospel despite what they had suffering, and the grace to the Thessalonians to treasure Christ and continue to endure despite their suffering. It was God's power. It may have been for miracles. We just, they just aren't mentioned there. But it could also have been God's power to save and to sustain. Because that also is God's power. Now, it's not nearly as cool, maybe, not, not nearly as newsworthy, but it also is God's power. I remember Karen and I were speaking in a supporting church years ago, and we did our thing and probably made the kids sing a song or something. You know, <laughs> um, Sorry, our kids were like circus performers when they were little, traveling with us, speaking in churches. So, no, it wasn't that bad, but that's probably what they remember. But anyway, we spoke then in this church. We took questions later, and... And, uh, you know, I'm talking about different things and that got it done. And, and, this guy raised a question, he said, you got any testimonies about the power of God? And of course, in my mind, I thought, have you not been listening to anything God said? And all I could think of, it really annoyed me. I will confess it annoyed me. So I said, we're still here and we're not quitting. And he just looked at me. It was incredibly awkward. And, uh, I just, that, that was it. <laughs> and, and, uh, Thankfully, Karen thought of a cool story, hopped up and shared something and saved the day. But, uh, you know, there is something to God's power to save and sustain because oftentimes all we have to keep us going is the love of God in the gospel. So, Paul says, our message came to you not just with words but with power. And then he said it came with the Holy Spirit. So, Paul recognized the work of the Spirit First, in giving to him and Silas Timothy boldness to proclaim the gospel, but also give the work of the Spirit in the lives of the Thessalonians because their hearts were changed. They were radically changed. That is what the Spirit of God does. He applies the work of Christ. He advances the gospel. He opens, dead, he opens blind eyes. He awakens dead hearts to the gospel, to the, to the horrible nature of sin, to the beauty of Christ, and he enables repentance and faith. He, that is what he does, and Paul saw this happen. Then he said, it came, our gospel came to you with deep conviction. This is not the, the word conviction. It's not the same word like that Jesus used in John 16 when he said the spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This, this means more like, like deep assurance or confidence. Yeah. What it, it means is that Paul and Silas and Timothy were fully confident about the things they were saying, were things they believed. They were confident not because of their eloquence, but because they were true. And it was important. And the Thessalonians were brought from a place of seeking to a place of finding, from a place of ignorance and uncertainty to a place also of full confidence in what they had heard and believed, so confident that they were willing immediately, immediately willing to suffer for Christ, to continue to, continue to believe despite what they were suffering. So Paul reminded the Thessalonians, he and his team had lived among them consistently, with their gospel they proclaimed. He mentioned this several times in the letter. We'll see it again over the next few weeks. Paul tells them in verse 6, you became imitators of us and the Lord. So, of course, we know Jesus suffered. Remember, this is what Paul said in Acts 17. He said that was what he did when he went in the synagogue. He showed them from the Scriptures that the Scriptures teach a suffering Messiah. And then he said Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus suffered. Paul, Silas, and Timothy suffered. And so it's no surprise the Thessalonians also suffered. But Paul says, As you received it, even though you suffered severely, you received the gospel with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And now they become part of ongo- God's ongoing activity because they are now examples to others who hear and are awakened to the gospel, what is different about them. God is using them to advance the gospel. So God's choice of them finds expression in their response to the gospel their participation in the ongoing activity of God. This gives perspective about hardship and suffering. We know that it is happening for a reason, and it helps us press on faithfully despite what we suffer. Now, sometimes people say as they think about this, they say, well, you know, if, if election is true, if God chooses people, then, I mean, why pray since it's all decided? Or why evangelize since the elect are going to believe anyway? Well, I don't think Paul or the Thessalonians ever even thought of that question. That's, that's something that modern people think of. But if this may be your question, well, first I would say that if your faith, love, and hope are in Christ, good luck not praying and not evangelizing. <laughs> okay? I'm serious. If you know Christ, you pray. You do. You cannot not pray. Right? So good luck letting this discourage you from praying. It should not. To know that you come before a God whose love for you is everlasting, who is already disposed to help you, it should energize your prayer. I understand sometimes prayer is exciting, sometimes it is a discipline. Still remember my flatmates praying with them one evening when I was in seminary and well, they woke me up when the prayer time was over. Fell asleep. (laughs) That's how exciting it was. Actually, they woke me up by both yelling in my ear, God, we thank you that we are not like Preston who falls asleep during prayers. So what great brothers they were. So, but but also the the same is true for evangelism. I know sometimes there's fear associated with evangelism, but you can get past those first few seconds, you're free. You can do this, okay? So cross the bridge, get past the awkwardness, share the gospel with people. If you love Jesus it's going to find some expression in your life. There is no way to stop that. So that's a, it's just a bogus argument, okay? But also we understand that that the God who determines the ends also determines the means and prayer and proclamation, evangelism, preaching, things like that. Those are the means, those are the primary means that God uses to bring people to Christ. That's what we saw, that's what happened in Thessalonica. So we have to understand that the gospel is not advice. It is not therapy. It is not steps to self-improvement. It is news. It is news. It is news that everyone needs to hear. It is news of what God has done for sinners in Christ. It is news that demands a response, repentance and faith. Because Jesus Christ has died and risen and he lays claim to each of our lives he is worthy of your life of your affection of your faith love and hope he is worthy and he expects that he deserves it that's what it means to come to him and so it is news that comes that demands a response but it also comes with a promise now We're all watching the news more lately because of current events. There is no news that comes with a command and a promise, right? (laughs) They just tell us what happened. This news comes with a command, repent and believe. And it comes with a promise that if you will repent and believe, you will be forgiven. You will be delivered. You will belong to Christ. And you will be a part of God's ongoing activity in the world. You can say this to anybody. See, sometimes people hear about this thing, this subject and they think, well, I've got to figure out if someone is chosen or not. No, that's not what Paul did. When he went into the synagogue, he didn't say, raise your hand if you're elective God. He didn't do that. He just taught the scriptures. And God, Paul did what God commanded him to do, and God did what only he could do. See, God calls us to make disciples, not to election inspection, okay? This is what God expects us to do. He will do what he will do. We can trust him to do that, okay? His word is powerful. And we need to remember, again, thinking about this question of why pray, why evangelize? Let's think about the example of Paul, who begins his most in-depth treatment of this subject in Romans 9 to 11, but he begins in Romans 9, Romans 9, first weeping over his lost relatives, as he says, Romans 9, Romans chapter 9, verse 2. I have great sorrow in my heart, and I'm sorry, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He is broken over the unbelief of his people. And then he begins chapter 10 by expressing his desire and his prayer for them to be saved. Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And sometimes I read Romans 10 and and I think to myself, Paul, didn't you just write Romans 9? (laughs) Yes, he did. It is not inconsistent. Okay. Desire, what I would say is if the desire for people to come to Christ... To, to prayer for them, I, seeking to, you know, desire prayer, proclamation, to see people come to Christ. If that's, if that's not at least a desire of yours, then you have not understood election like Paul understood it. It energized his ministry. It didn't, he didn't make his tent saying, what will I do? Oh, oh goodness, I believe this terrible doctrine. That's not how it works, right? It energized his ministry, explained his ministry. So, let it energize you. So this has been sobering, to, sobering things to think about. I imagine some of you will continue to, to wrestle with this, and that's fine. Take your time. Study the scriptures. Uh, I, when I was uh, teaching and the subject was part of things, I would tell students, you don't have to agree with me to pass the class. You know, that's, that's fair enough. But it's also easy to see why thanksgiving, why gratitude dominates chapter one. Because Paul sees the unmistakable work of God in the experience of the Thessalonians. So, as we close, let's just remember this is something that's revealed in Scripture, not to give us something to argue about or wrestle over, but to encourage us, to help us in some way. Why in the world would Paul mention this to new believers in a new church? You know, normally, A new believer asked about this, we said, no, just wait, you can deal with that later. But Paul comes right out and says, no, you need to understand this this is personal. You, You didn't just come to Christ in a vacuum. God was behind this. So I believe it is because for a suffering church whose existence was threatened daily, they needed to know their destiny was not determined by their circumstances, but by a good and sovereign God who had loved them since before he had ever created them. And I would say the same thing to you. If your faith, hope, and love are in Christ, it is because he chose you. You are his treasure and his delight, and he will never abandon you. Nothing can take this from you, not suffering, not invasion, not cancer, not divorce, not failure, not even death itself. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And he deeply desires to involve you in what he is doing in the world. That's part of why he brought you to himself. You are not an end. It is for the sake of those whom God has brought into your life. So just be open to what he may be doing around you. And inevitably, when people hear about this, they, they feel a bit uh, threatened and uncomfortable and think, well, what if, what if I'm not one of those? How can, I, how can I be one of those chosen of God? Well, the answer is in this passage today, right? Paul knew the Thessalonians were chosen by God because of their response to the gospel. So... If you want to be part of that multitude, which no one is able to count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you come to Jesus. You repent of your sin, come to him, fix your faith, love, and hope on him, and stop trying to figure out if you're elect or not. Trust me, I've tried, it's a waste of time. Just believe the gospel, come to Christ. Don't wait, just repent, believe, put your faith, love, and hope in Christ. Who died and rose again and is returning put your hope in him and in him alone and if you do want to know more about what that means please find one of us after the service today let's pray together father we are we're deeply humbled by what we've heard today and so we we thank you because we realize that, that we can think back to a time of coming to you we understand that you were at work long before that we thank you that you are good and I pray, especially for those who are in difficulty today and hardship, that, that today this will be of encouragement to them to know that nothing can separate us from your love for us in Christ. And I pray that you'll help each of us as we leave this place to be open to what you are doing around us because we acknowledge today we are, we are not the end. It's not like you were just looking until you found us, that you want to use us to reach and engage other people, so that they also may come to know You. We desire to see the gospel advance. We live in such bewildering and uncertain times. I pray You will help us cling to You. For those who, whose faith and lives just feel threatened right now, please nourish their hope today and their comfort in You, and help us press on day by day, please, for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.